recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Tonight is Friday, October 4th, 2013. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. I don't have a rant tonight. I like to start each Friday night program with at least a short rant on one, on, on, on one topic currently bothering me or another. I really don't have one tonight except that the same old shrill little girly clowns are, are, are attempting to discredit me over and over again. If it's not the Novemberites, it's, it's Dick Niemeller and, and, and idiots like that just repeating the same slanders the Novemberites made four years ago. I will um, tomorrow commence a series, which I hope will discredit a lot of my critics. It's going to be all about 2C line, and it's going to start with Genesis chapter 1. I will be accompanied by Sword Brethren once again. I'm entitling tomorrow's program... Explaining 2C line, part one, pragmatic genesis. And in the first segment, I hope to address all the clowns that think that there's more than one creation of Adam. I'm going to address all the clowns that think that some plural gods created Adam and, and that then a different Adam was created by one singular god. I'm going to address all the clowns that simply can't read. And that, that's what they can't do. That, that they want to engineer an interpretation of Genesis which fits their own worldview. And usually they try to do that in order to squeeze people that don't belong in the biblical narrative into the biblical narrative. Tomorrow, I hope to discredit the clowns that adhere to this dominion theology that somehow the white man is supposed to rule over non-white races with the law of God. That's absolutely absurd. That's a theology which was created by, well, well it was first adhered to by the Jesuits who thought that they should use Christianity as a tool in order to control and manipulate all of the world's races. And then following them, it was a theology mostly promoted by, directly, on, under the, the, the same framework and, and the, the, the same nomenclature, dominion theology, by British Israel, so that they could justify the existence of the British Empire. And, and of course, you see how that worked out for them, now the animals rule the farm in Britain. So dominion theology is an abject failure, and it's not biblical. And I'm planning on and, and hoping to show the, the, the faults and the fact that there's no scriptural basis for dominion theology whatsoever. So I hope to embark on that crusade tomorrow on my Saturday program. That program, I, I plan that series, I imagine it might run for many weeks. Tonight, I believe we begin our 20th segment. I could be wrong. I didn't count, but I think it's 20. Our 20th segment presenting the book of Acts. Chapter 15, part two. 
In the first part of our presentation of Acts chapter 15, we saw that there was a dispute at Antioch between Paul and Barnabas primarily on the one side and certain Judaizers who had come from Jerusalem on the other side who insisted that those who were turned to Christianity, those of the nations who were turned to Christianity, should be circumcised and instructed to keep the Mosaic Law. Disputing these things, Paul and Barnabas then agreed to bring their case before the elder apostles in Jerusalem for a decision concerning these matters. I would say that understanding these matters, understanding this dispute in Acts chapter 15, and I hope to, um, to, to exhibit it in great detail tonight, understanding this dispute is understanding, it leads to an understanding of the early sects of Christianity. Um, the Marcionites, the Ebionites. Uh, I'll discuss that in, in great part tonight. I'll discuss it in even further detail when we present Acts 21, Yahweh willing, in, in a month or so, or maybe in two months or so. I, I don't know how long it's going to take me to get there. Later on, in Jerusalem, Upon hearing their arguments, the arguments of Paul and Barnabas, the Apostle Peter spoke professing that the people of the nations received the gift of the Holy Spirit apart from any rituals whatsoever. And therefore, it was not necessary for those turned to Christianity to adhere to such things. For this reason, Peter's conclusion was that the nations should not be compelled to submit to the yoke of the Mosaic Law, where he said, and I quote, Therefore, now, why tempt Yahweh to place a yoke upon the necks of the students, which neither our fathers nor us had been able to bear? While later in his epistles, Paul gives an even greater scriptural reason for the passing of the Mosaic Law. We can see that the book of Acts records a religious transition, and Peter's conclusion is justified, since upon investigation, it is indeed supported by the Law and the Prophets. We'll see that at great length when we present the epistles of Paul here at Christogenia next year. Or, or Yahweh willing even sooner than that. That that'll take a long time. I I imagine. I don't have them planned yet. Peter then made a very important point that cannot be overlooked, where he is recorded as, he is recorded as having said, and I'll read from Acts fifteen eleven. But through the favor of Prince Yahshua. We trust to be saved by the manner as they also. There he not only admitted that the people of the nations turning to Christ are saved by the grace of God rather than by any doings of their own, rather than by the conduct of rituals in the law, but he also professed that Judean Christians have that same anticipation 
that their righteousness would not be found in the keeping of the law, but in Christ apart from the law. So we see that in this instance, Peter summarily agrees with all of those things concerning the law, which were later taught by Paul throughout his epistles. It's James who will differ, and we will see that momentarily. Following Peter's discourse, Luke then records a response given by the Apostle James, who for the most part agreed with Peter where he said in verse 19 of this chapter, on which account I judge not to trouble those from among the nations who turn to God, attesting that the nations should not be compelled to comply with the Mosaic law. However, there were three points which James must have felt were so important that they transcended submission to that law. These three points are described as James's discourse in verse 20. But to enjoin them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from fornication and from that which is strangled and from blood. These three things, I'm putting that which is strangled in from blood into the same category. These three things, as we have seen at length where we finished with the first segment of this presentation of Acts chapter 15 last week. These three things enjoin Christians to abstain from anything which embraces pagan idolatry and to abstain from race mixing and other illicit sexual relations and to look into the and to look into and keep certain of Yahweh's dietary laws. With this, James concludes by saying, as it is recorded in verse twenty one, for Moses from generations of old has those who are proclaiming him in each city in the assembly halls being read each and every Sabbath. Here, in our opinion, James is making a statement that perhaps it is good for Christians to look into the law by informing them that it is indeed read each and every Sabbath in the Judean assembly halls, which at that time were not yet reduced to being strictly Edomite in their management and attendance. Paul would agree. Paul would agree where he later says in his second epistle to Timothy that all writing inspired of God is also beneficial for teaching, for evidence, for correction, for education, which is in righteousness. That the man of God would be perfect, having prepared himself for all good works, 2 Timothy chapter 3. Paul must also have been referring to the Old Testament scriptures, where he refers to all writing inspired of God. At a time when few could afford the luxury of books, the only place most people could hear the law and the prophets, was in the assembly halls of the Judeans. While Paul taught 
that those who demanded that Christians keep the Mosaic law and the rituals sought to enslave them. And we see that in Galatians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. He also taught that Christians should not nullify the law on account of faith, but rather that through their faith they should seek to establish it. Yet Christ being their only and final propitiation, there is no more need for rituals. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 31. The Pharisees of the time, seeking to maintain the institution of a professional priesthood, sought to continue to control the people as they had been doing for centuries. The stature of the temple was the pretext of their authority. But the faith in Christ annulled their power over the people, leaving the temple and its priesthood and its rituals useless. It cannot be told. Exactly when James had written the single epistle which survives in his name. Here, concerning Acts 15, we have seen that these events recorded took place about 47 AD. James died, according to the historian Flavius Josephus. He was murdered. Circa 62 AD, or about two years after Paul departed for Rome, which would also be about four years after their last meeting, as it is recorded in Acts chapter 21. It would be 15 years after these events here. In his epistle, writing to the 12 tribes scattered abroad, James certainly does display his expectation that Christians from among the nations abide in the implanted word which is able to save their souls, which is certainly a reference to the law written in their hearts, prophesied in Jeremiah 31-33, and mentioned also by Paul in Romans chapter 2-15, and in Romans 6-15. Here it is from James chapter 1, from the Christogenian New Testament. You know, my beloved brethren, that every man must be quick for which to listen, slow for which to speak, slow for anger. Indeed, the anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of Yahweh. On which account, laying aside every filth and residue of evil, accept with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Now you must be doers of the word and not hearers only. Defrauding yourselves. Because if one is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing the appearance of his race in a mirror. For he observes himself and departs and immediately forgets of what sort he was. He might act like a nigger. But peering into the perfect law of freedom, or a Jew, and abiding by it, not being a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, he shall be blessed by his deed. This implanted word, this perfect law of freedom, as we see later in James's epistle, seems to include at least 
the Ten Commandments and the other commands of Christ found in the Gospel, as is evident in James chapter 2. And I'll quote from James 2.8. If, however, you fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love him near to you as yourself. You do well. But if you respect the stature of persons, you commit error, being convicted by the law as transgressors. For he who should keep the whole law but would fail in one thing has become liable for all. For he, having said, you should not commit adultery, also said you should not murder. And if you do not commit adultery but you commit murder, you would become a transgressor of the law. Well, the Apostle John has said in his epistles that a murderer is one who hates his brother, 1 John 3.15. And here James seems to be saying, in a rather circumlocutious way, he seems to be saying that same thing, informing us that the works or deeds which he expects Christians to perform are those related to loving our brethren as we love ourselves and not related to the rituals of the law. In that chapter, the theme is the respect of the status of persons. And James is teaching that we should not seek to curry the favor of the wealthy at the expense of our lesser brethren. Rather, we should seek to uplift our lesser brethren. Now, that was addressed to the 12 tribes scattered abroad. However, the Christians of the nations, right? Not the Judean Christians who weren't from all 12 tribes. However, from Acts chapter 21, and the discourse between Paul and James, who was accompanied by some other and unnamed elders as, as Luke had recorded, James evidently commanded Paul to do things according to the Mosaic law that Paul acceded to. Since James, was his, since James was indeed his elder, things which ultimately led to Paul's arrest. There in that chapter, the record shows that until near the end of his life, four years before his death, James adhered to a different standard for Judean Christians than that prescribed here in Acts 15 for Christians from among the nations. While James did not expect Christians from among the nations to keep the precepts of the Mosaic law above what Christ and the apostles had explicitly commanded, which is outlined in both the Gospels and here in Acts chapter 15, in Acts chapter 21, it is revealed that James did indeed expect Judean Christians to continue in the rituals and the laws of Moses, explicitly including circumcision and certain of the purification rituals. Now, the events of Acts chapter 21 occurred circa 58 A.D., about 11 years after these events in Acts chapter 15. 
Here in Acts chapter 15, James agreed with Peter for the most part, but did not answer or agree with Peter's statement at Acts 15.11, where Peter said, but through favor, through the favor of Prince Joshua, we, meaning the Judeans, must, we trust to be saved by the same manner also as they, meaning Christians from amongst the nations, from amongst the dispersion of Israel. From Acts chapter 21, I'll read from verse 18. Paul going to Jerusalem to see James. And on the next day, Paul went in with us to see James, and all the elders were present. Now, those elders are unnamed. It's ostensible that Peter, it's evident that Peter is not among them. And greeting them, he explained about each one of those things which Yahweh had done among the nations through his ministry. And those hearing it extolled Yahweh and said unto him, You consider, brethren, speaking to Paul and his company, how many myriads, a myriad being thousands of people, how many myriads there are among the Judeans who are believing, all being zealous of the law. And they are informed concerning you, meaning Paul, that you teach departure from Moses for Judeans throughout all the nations, saying for them, and and there was a dispersion of Judeans throughout the the Greco-Roman world, right? Saying for them not to circumcise the children, nor to walk in the customs. So what is it? By all means, they shall hear that you have come. Therefore, do this which we say to you. There are among us four men having a vow upon themselves. Taking them, you must be purified with them and pay the expense for them that they shave their heads. And all shall know that that which they are informed concerning you is nothing, but that you yourself also walk in line keeping the law. And concerning those of the nations who believe, we deciding have commanded them to avoid both that which is sacrificed to idols in blood and strangled and fornication. A reference back to these events of Acts chapter 15. Then Paul, taking the men on the following day, being purified with them, went into the temple, giving notice of the fulfillment of the days of purification until when the offering is offered on behalf of each one of them, the four men. These Judean Christians who clung to the Mosaic Law were later called Ebionites. The the Ebionites loved James. And they hated Paul as an apostate because he taught the eclipse of the law of Moses. Later, Paul addressed them in his epistle to the Hebrews, explaining from Scripture, among other things, that Levi was yet in the loins of Abraham when Abraham gave tithes to Melchizedek. 
And that since Christ was a priest of the order of Melchizedek, according to the prophecies concerning Christ, and not of Levi, that his priesthood transcended that of Levi. Paul then tells them that the priesthood being changed from necessity, a change of law happens also, and that is found at Hebrews 7.12. Yahweh willing, we shall discuss these things at greater length in our forthcoming presentation of Acts chapter 21. Paul did not necessarily have to agree with these demands to fulfill such a ritual, but it is obvious that he did fulfill them, acceding to his elders, as he also had in the past, here in Acts chapter 15, when their decision was in his favor. It is also fully evident that James was in agreement with all of this, whether James originated these ideas or not, we're not really told in Acts. Since all the elders of Acts chapter 21 are not identified. Ostensibly, Peter was not in Jerusalem at that time. It is therefore evident that James esteemed that Judean Christians should continue to be held to the Mosaic Law and the circumcision along with other rituals, such as the purification ritual that Paul was compelled to undergo. This is why, for my part, I am persuaded that James did not understand the one-stick prophecy of Ezekiel chapter 37. For if Israel and Judah were to be one stick in the hand of God and have but one king, it follows that they must have but one law. And the prophecy concerning the law written in their hearts under the new covenant did not exclude anyone of Israel. That prophecy was explicitly for the house of Israel and for the house of Judah, Jeremiah chapter 31. I will read Ezekiel chapter 37 from verse 15. The word of Yahweh came, came again unto me, saying, Moreover, thou son of man, take thee one stick and write upon it. For Judah and for the children of Israel, his companions, then take another stick and write upon it. For Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and for all the house of Israel, his companions. And join them one to another into one stick, and they shall become one in thine hand. And when the children of thy people shall speak unto thee, saying, Wilt thou not show us what thou meanest by these? Say unto them, Thus saith Yahweh God, Behold, I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel his fellows, and will put them with him, even with the stick of Judah, and make them one stick, and they shall be one in mine hand. And the sticks whereon thou writest shall be in thine hand before their eyes. And say unto them, Thus saith Yahweh God, Behold, I will take the children of Israel from among the nations. I'll read nations instead of the King James reading heathen. 
whither they be gone, and will gather them on every side, and will bring them into their own land, and I will make them one nation in the land upon the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king to them all, and they shall no more be two nations. That's not possible if Christians are following that law written in their hearts and the law of the gospel. And Judeans who are Christians are following the Mosaic law and keeping the rituals. It's not possible. And one king shall be king to them all, and they shall be no more two nations. Neither shall they be divided into two kingdoms any more at all. Neither shall they defile any more with their idols, defile themselves any more with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions. But I will save them out of all their dwelling places wherein they have sinned, and will cleanse them. So shall they be my people, and I will be their God. And David, my servant, shall be king over them. And they shall all have one shepherd. They shall all also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes to do them. And they shall dwell in the land that I have given unto Jacob my servant, wherein your fathers have dwelled. And they shall dwell therein, even they, and their children and their children's children forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in the midst of them forevermore. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Yeah, I will be their God and they shall be my people. And the nations shall know that I, Yahweh, do sanctify Israel when my sanctuary shall be in the midst of them forevermore. The second incarnation. Therefore we see Israel and Judah a prophecy to have one king and keep the same law. This can only happen in Christ, for whom David is a type. While the remnant of Judea had a special purpose in the plan of Yahweh God, the people of the Judeans were no better than those of dispersed Israel. Judah was his sanctuary, and Israel his dominion. Psalm 114. This is also why Paul later taught in his epistle that there is not one Judean or Greek. There is not one bondman or freeman. There is not one male and female. For you are all one in Christ, Yahshua. And this is in his epistle to the Galatians where he was chastising them for being persuaded by Judaizers, explaining that those still under the rituals of the law were the children of bondage and not the children of the Spirit. They were Edomites and Ishmaelites. They were not Israelites. Think about that in its relevance to Judaism and Islam today. When either the Judeans or those of the nations turn to Christ, 
all being of the seed of Israel. They became Christians and equal members of the body of Christ. There were no two separate bodies of Christ. Keeping the Judean Christians under the law, the circumcision, and the rituals, as James was doing in Acts chapter 21, and as he professed to do, you create two separate bodies of Christ. And as a side note, because this, that this affects another realm of Christian thinking, this is where the false doctrine of kinism fails. Kinism seeks to make multiple bodies of Christ. They attempt to make Christians of anyone and everyone, and then maintain racial segregation, when in reality, only descendants of the authentic Israelites can be Christian in the first place. Therefore, true Christianity is racial segregation. There can only be one body of Christ. And in it, we are all equals, and we are all brethren. And we all have to be flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone. As even Paul admits in Ephesians chapter 5, that the assembly is the flesh of his flesh. As Paul later explains in Romans chapter 6, Christians should cease from wrongdoing and seek obedience to God. However, they are no longer bondmen of guilt or sin. In other words, they are no longer being obligated to the rituals of the Old Covenant Levitical Law. Rather, they are granted grace by Christ through which they shall be judged righteous. As David said, and Paul quoted in Romans, blessed is the man to whom Yahweh does not impute sin. Appreciating this, Christians should all the more desire to be obedient to him. Paul concludes by asking, what then shall we commit wrongdoing because we are not under the law, but under favor. Certainly not. But feel grateful to Yahweh that you were bondmen of guilt, but you obeyed from the heart into which a form of instruction was transmitted. Romans six fifteen and 17. Writing this, earlier in his epistle, Paul had already commended the Romans and the Romans were indeed descendants of the ancient Israelites that departed from Egypt before the Exodus, which is why they were wild olives. Paul had already commended them in Romans chapter 2 for having built a society founded upon the rule of law. And Paul said that they exhibit the work of the law written in their hearts, bearing witness with their conscience. Romans 2.15. It is evident in Scripture that the Levitical law was not the original law of God, but was rather instituted for the purpose of the administration of a kingdom in its special relationship to God. Rather, an aboriginal law existed, which may be considered to be the natural law of man. And man, of course, 
describes only Adamic man. There is no other man. There is no other man in Scripture. And that's how Paul himself equates the term throughout Romans chapter 5. Man is Adam. The fact that this natural law existed is evident in Genesis chapter 26. 430 years before the law at Mount Sinai, Yahweh God attests that Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. If there was no aboriginal law, man could not have been adjudged as being wicked by God and held accountable before any law existed. Even Paul says, where there's no law, there's no sin, right? Yet man was judged for being wicked in Genesis chapter 6, so there must have been law. This is what Paul explained to the Hebrews throughout his epistle to them. And the Ebionites rejected even that. It is further evident that this natural law is reflected in the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments were the first laws given to Israel, and they were given to Israel directly by Yahweh God himself rather than through the hands of man, Exodus chapter 20. With this, we shall proceed with Acts chapter 15. From verse 22, just after James finishes his discourse in response to Peter, and in addition to the things which Peter had said, determining that the Christians turned to Christ from among the nations should not be forced to keep the laws of Moses and the circumcision. But they should, and and by doing this, they added to the Ten Commandments, and the Eleventh Commandment, to love their brother. They should abstain from fornication, from certain of the food laws, or, or obey certain of the food laws, abstaining from things strangled and from blood, and from any form of idolatry. Acts 15.22 Then it was determined by the ambassadors and the elders, with the whole assembly, to send men chosen from among them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. Judah, who was called Barsabbas, and Silas, a man esteemed among the brethren, writing through their hand. Some manuscripts add the word thus. The codices Ephraim, Siri, and Beze have writing a letter through their hand containing thus, or thusly. This Judah, or Judas, or Judah, is evidently not the apostle Jude who bore the same name. Silas will later become a companion of Paul's, and we will see that at the end of the chapter. Continuing Continuing with verse 23, the content of the letter. The ambassadors and the elder brethren, to those brethren among the nations throughout Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greeting. 
Here it is evident that there were Christian brethren considered to be elders apart from the apostles themselves. And in fact, the codices Laudianus and the majority text have elders and brethren to those brethren among the nations. The decision of the apostles is shared in writing with all of the Christians of the region. Yet even this letter does not prevent Paul from later having to deal with Judaizers, men who would compel Christians from among the nations to keep the circumcision in the Mosaic Law. In his subsequent travels, especially in Galatia, Paul meets those Judaizers and argues with them, and argues with them in his epistles. And he outlines that in his epistle to those assemblies, and those assemblies aren't established until later in his ministry. Galatia, I don't think, is mentioned until Acts chapter 16. Since we have heard that some coming out from among us have troubled you with words, ravaging your souls with things which we have not ordered, it was determined by us, being of one accord, to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have given their souls on behalf of the name of our Prince, Yahshua Christ. The ministries of Paul and Barnabas are officially recognized by the other apostles. The Judaizers, having been corrected in this instance, are not named in writing. Now, several manuscripts, there's a lot of variations here among the manuscripts. Several manuscripts add lengthy references to the circumcision and keeping of the law before the phrase in this passage, things which we have not ordered. Among those manuscripts are the majority text, so you'll see some of that language in the King James, and the codices Ephraim, Siri, and Laudianus. And they have, each one of them has different interpolations. They don't agree. At the end of verse 26, certain codices add the words, in every trial. Verse 27, so we have sent Judah and Silas, and they by word announcing these things, it may have been rendered, are announcing these things. For it was determined by the Holy Spirit and by us to impose not any greater burden upon you but these necessities, to abstain from things sacrificed to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication, from which, keeping yourselves, you shall do well. Farewell. Very short letter. Or at least the recorded version in Luke is very short. That the Ten Commandments and the further commandment that Christians are to love one another are already an explicit part of the gospel. It is evident that these things added here by the apostles are an, are an addition to those injunctions that the gospel already contains. Furthermore, 
understanding the later example of Paul in his use of the word fornication at Acts, uh, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 8, where Paul refers to a race-mixing event for which ancient Israel was cursed, as described in the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 25, when the children of Israel joined themselves not to the idols of Moab, but to the daughters of Moab. And 23,000 of them were slain in one day. That event, Paul describes, as fornication. And by the statement of Jude, in verse 7 of his short epistle, where he explains that fornication is the going after of different flesh. I know the King James Version says strange flesh. The Greek word is heteros. Heteros means different or other. With those two examples from Scripture on the meaning of the word fornication, that fornication is basically race mixing. Here in Acts chapter 15, we see in writing from the original apostles themselves in the person of James and Peter, an explicit command in writing was issued to Christians to abstain from race mixing. It's not taught in any church today. Verse 30. So then they being released, went down into Antioch, and gathering together the multitude, handed over the letter. And reading it, they rejoiced at the encouragement. Then Judah and Silas also themselves being interpreters of prophecy with many words encouraged and reinforced the brethren and spending a time, and literally the, the Greek says doing a time, they were released with peace from the brethren to those who sent them. They were let go to go back to Jerusalem. At the end of verse 33, the Codex Ephraimi Siri inserts the words, but it was decided by Silas to stay with them. The Codex Beze inserts, but it was decided by Silas to stay with them, and only Judah went back to Jerusalem, right? A version similar to that of the Codex Ephraimi Siri is found in verse 34 in the King James Version of the Bible. In that, in that verse, the King James differs from the majority text. The text of the Christogenian New Testament omits that verse, following the Codices Sinaiticus, Alexandrinus, Vaticanus, Laudianus, and the majority text. In any event, it is evident from verse 40 that Silas was in Antioch and did later accompany Paul on his missionary journeys to Anatolia and to Europe. But that in itself is not an indication that he actually stayed in Antioch here at this point. It seems that the addition was made because somebody realized that there may be a conflict, but there really may be no conflict at all. That in itself is not an indication that he actually stayed in Antioch here at this point. Since the time that Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch after this point, 
And before deciding to embark upon a second journey, recorded in verse 40, is not certain, and many things may have transpired in the interim. It's like people trying to help Luke. Later scribes trying to help Luke, I guess. Every translation contains a certain amount of interpretation which cannot be avoided. Nobody can make a perfectly literal translation. It's not possible. that You are going to come to junctures where you have to make an interpretation of a word or of what is being said in order to translate it. A perfectly literal translation would not make sense in another language, even though a certain amount of that can be achieved. It can't be complete. The Greek word, prophetes, Strong's number 4396, prophet, in a Christian context, may refer to one who records communications from God and announces them to others. And that's what we see in the Old Testament prophets. Or it may refer to one who interprets the word of God for others. And that's the most basic definition of the word as it is supplied by Liddell and Scott in their Greek-English lexicon. And that's the sense that Paul seems to use the word at in Ephesians 3.5 and in 1 Corinthians 13.2 where he mentions understanding the mysteries of Scripture. Or it may also represent or refer to one who has an unnatural ability to know and to reveal things which are not generally known. In that sense, the Samaritan woman at the well used the word prophet in reference to Christ, as it is recorded in John chapter 4. Christ told her she had five husbands, and the man she's with now is not her husband. And she said, I do believe that you are a prophet. That's how she was using the word. That's also the sense that Paul uses the word in at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 14, talking about the unlearned, those who are new to Christianity, and the thoughts of their hearts are revealed, and they understand that God is true, in summary. Therefore, the phrase interpreters of prophecy here may have just as well been rendered simply as prophets. However, the context here seems to indicate that the men were expounding the prophecies of, from the Old Testament of Christ and the precepts of Christianity in order to prove that Christ was indeed the promised Messiah, and therefore I have rendered the word interpreters of prophecy here, the word being a plural, of course, just to, um, just to demonstrate some of the thinking that goes into a translation. What we have to not only interpret how a word is used at one point, but we have to interpret why we think it may have been used in the manner in which we choose to, to render that word. So that's why, because of the content of the teaching and the context of the, 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 context of the use of the word, I've often rendered it interpreters of prophecy in Scripture rather than just prophets. Verse 35, 
Then Paul and Barnabas spent time in Antioch, <clears throat> teaching and announcing the good message of the word of the prince, with many others also. Then after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Now turning, we should visit the brethren throughout every city in which we declared the word of the prince, how they sustain. And those words, how they sustain, are quite literal. Where the King James Version has, how they do. A colloquial rendering may have been how they hold up, referring to their abidance in the scriptures and in the gospel. There is no telling exactly how long it may have been since Paul's first missionary journey with Barnabas ended, which is recorded at the end of Acts chapter 14. However, reading his epistle to the Galatians in the manner which we do, as it is 47 AD, and the edict of Claudius mentioned in Acts chapter 18 verse 1 was issued in 49 AD, with all of Paul's travels described in Acts chapter 16 and 17, it's very likely that this period of time which they spend in Antioch is perhaps a period of only some weeks or maybe months and not years that Paul carries here in Antioch before this plan is made for a second missionary journey. Verse 37. And Barnabas was resolved to take along also John, who is called Mark. But Paul thought it fitting not to bring him along, who withdrew from them in Paphilia and did not go together with them to the work. First, like Saul, Saul, who is called Paul, who was also called Paul, Mark had a second name. His name was John. And sometimes he is called by one, and sometimes he is called by the other. And sometimes the King James wrote it, the King James translators wrote Mark, and sometimes the King James, the King James translators wrote Marcus. So there's a lot of confusion over the identity of this man. In Acts chapter 13, twice, Luke refers to him only as John. In Acts chapter 12, and in Acts 15, 37, he is John, whose surname was Mark. Here in Acts chapter 15, verse 39, he is only called Mark. Taking for granted that he is the same Mark, as he certainly appears to be. He is called Mark at Colossians 4.10, at 2 Timothy 4.11, and at Philemon 24. He also appears to be the Mark of 1 Peter 5.13, where Peter calls him Marcus my son, as the King James Version has it. <coughs> Excuse me. Mark, or John Mark, is introduced to us in Acts chapter 12, where Peter among his miraculous escape from prison at the hands of the angel, goes to the home of Mark's mother, Mary. And Mark is there, John Mark is there, where many of the other disciples are gathered. 
Barnabas and Paul are in Antioch at the end of Acts chapter 11. And they are not mentioned again until the end of Acts chapter 12, where upon returning to Jerusalem, Mark accompanies them, which is recorded in Acts 12.25. It is mentioned in Acts 13.5 that John Mark had accompanied Paul and Barnabas on their very first missionary journey, where it says that they had John for an assistant. When John Mark failed to complete the mission, it does not give a reason except to say in verse 13, and setting sail from Paphos, Paul and those with him came to Perge in Pamphylia, but withdrawing from them, John returned to Jerusalem. That Mark was known by Peter for so long would explain why Peter called him my son. Although Mark's mother Mary, mentioned in Acts chapter 12, verse 12, could not have been Peter's wife. However, in Colossians 4.10, Paul calls him Marcus, the cousin of Barnabas. Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. From this we learn two things, because these must have been one and the same mark. First, we learn from Colossians 4.10 that Mark and Paul must have been reconciled later in life, although Barnabas, for whatever reason, is not mentioned again in Scripture after this split with Paul in Acts chapter 15, except for some of Paul's letters that he's referenced in. He's not mentioned in the historical narrative of Acts. And second, that Mark was a close relative of Barnabas's. He was his cousin. The King James Version has nephew, I believe. And that since Mark was a close relative of Barnabas's, that may explain why Barnabas defended him here so far as to split off from Paul rather than leave Mark behind. Barnabas wanted Mark with him. Verse 39. And there was irritation. Consequently, for them to depart from each other, meaning Paul and Barnabas, and for Barnabas taking Mark to sail off to Cyprus. While the split with Paul was permanent, Barnabas had to have continued in his own ministry, although none of this further ministry of Barnabas is recorded in Scripture, except where Paul addresses the Corinthian Christians. And Paul hasn't yet been to Corinth as of this point. Paul did not go to Corinth with Barnabas. But where Paul addresses the Corinthian Christians in his first epistle to the Corinthians, he referred to Barnabas as if they knew him, so they must have known him. That epistle was written much later than the time of this account here in Acts chapter 15. In fact, according to Scripture, Paul did not even evangelize in Corinth until Acts chapter 18. So writing to the Corinthians as if they knew Barnabas, and they must have. 
when you check the context of the references. Barnabas must have continued his ministry, and Corinth must have been one of the places he visited. Verse 40, but Paul, selecting Silas, departed, he being given in favor of the prince by the brethren. And they passed through Syria and Cilicia, reinforcing the assemblies. The Codex Beze inserts the words at the end of this verse, transmitting the commandments of the elders as if they brought the letter from the apostles with them. And, and that's possible, but it's definitely an interpolation. Acts chapter 15. And the rest of the book of Acts is not a complete narrative by any means. If it were, we would have far more than 15 chapters thus far for the 16-year period covered by the narrative up to this point. Rather, the book of Acts is only a collection of accounts recorded from events which stretched over a period of 30 years. Some of these accounts Luke had received from others, and other of these accounts Luke had recorded firsthand, and later put them all into a chronological narrative. But it's just a cross-section of the things that were conducted by the apostles over these 30 years. It, it's just a small number of the accounts in their lives over those 30 years. It's hardly complete. In order to more fully understand Acts chapter 15, Paul's own recollection of the events which it records should be examined. He recounts the events of Acts chapter 15 in Galatians chapters 1 and 2. Galatia is first mentioned in connection with Paul's ministry in Acts chapter 16, and again in Acts chapter 18. And evidently, there were many Christian assemblies there, which Paul had either founded, or which he had an earlier hand in helping to establish and strengthen. In his epistle to the Galatians, it is evident from chapter 1, <clears throat> that he is writing, with, writing them with a warning of a different gospel. And from chapter 3, it is evident that that different gospel which they were receiving had to do with the Judaizers who were attempting to compel the Galatians to undergo circumcision and to keep the Mosaic law, in spite of the decisions of the apostles themselves, recorded here in Acts 15. From Galatians chapter 1, from verse 15. But when it pleased Yahweh, who selected me from my mother's womb and called me through his favor to reveal his son by me, that I announce him among the nations, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor had I gone up to Jerusalem to those who were ambassadors before me. 
Rather, I departed into Arabia and then again returned to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to relate an account to Cephas, Cephas being the Hebrew word, which is the equivalent of Petros, from which we get the name Peter. Cephas is his Hebrew, the Hebrew equivalent of his nickname. And remained with him 15 days. But the other ambassadors I saw not except James, the brother of the prince. James, the brother of Christ. By the phrase, other ambassadors, in this passage, Paul must be referring to the original eleven. And after the account of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, in Acts chapter 8, there is no mention of any of the original apostles except Peter and James. Except for the mention of the slaying of James, the, the, the other James, James the son of Zebedee, in Acts chapter 12, whom Paul did not necessarily see. The Apostle Philip, if in fact he is Philip the, the Evangelist, is only mentioned on one other occasion in Acts chapter 21. Except for these, after the slaying of Stephen, none of the rest of the original 11 apostles are mentioned by name in the book of Acts. After Acts chapter 1, most of them are not mentioned again in the book of Acts at all. We see the appearance of, of John, the apostle, the original apostle John, the son of Zebedee, into Acts chapter 8, and, and I'm sorry, maybe in Acts chapter 5, but he's not mentioned any longer in Acts after that chapter. All of this adds to what we learn of Paul's conversion and his first visit to see the apostles in Jerusalem, as it is recorded in Acts chapter 9, where he is introduced to them by Barnabas himself. In that chapter, Paul is threatened by certain Hellenists and is sent by the other apostles to Tarsus. We see that in Acts 9.30. Tarsus is his hometown. And Tarsus is the capital city of the district of Colicia. Here in Galatians, we learn that the time which Paul spent with the apostles in Jerusalem during the events recorded in Acts chapter 9 was only about 15 days. He remained with Peter. 15 days during which he did not see the other apostles. He only saw James, the brother of Christ. Again from Galatians 1, from, chapter, from verse 20. Now the things I write to you, behold, in the presence of Yahweh that I do not lie. After that, meaning after Jerusalem, I went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia. We see in Acts 9.30 that he was sent to Tarsus by the apostles in Jerusalem because the Hellenists wanted to kill him. In Acts chapter 15, verse 23, we saw that the letter which the apostles at Jerusalem wrote to the Christians at Antioch concerning their decision in relation to the circumcision and the Mosaic law 
was more fully addressed to those brethren among the nations throughout Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. Now, while Paul and Barnabas did not go to Cilicia or, or, or Syria, right? They departed from Antioch, which is on the sea. Antioch is really in Syria, but it's on the sea. It's on a river on the sea anyway. They did not go to Calicia on their first missionary journey. Here in the last verse of Acts chapter 15, we see that Paul and Silas passed through Syria and Calicia, reinforcing the assemblies. Therefore, we learn only from this later epistle to the Galatians, right here from Galatians 1.20 and 1.21, that Paul himself must have been the founder of these Christian assemblies in Syria and Cilicia, which he is now visiting with Silas, and that they must have been founded during the period of time that Paul was in Tarsus, after he was sent to Tarsus, which is in Cilicia, by the apostles in Acts 9.30. And before Barnabas went to search for him in Tarsus, as it is recorded in Acts 11.25. Tarsus was actually not very far from Antioch, but it was closer by sea to Antioch than it was by land. And Antioch was actually in Syria, although it is addressed separately in the salutation in the Acts chapter 15 letter. Again, from Galatians 1. From verse 22. But I was unknown in appearance to the assemblies of Judea, which are among the number of the anointed. And they were only hearing that he who persecuting us at one time is now announcing the faith which he once endeavored to destroy. And they supposed that Yahweh was within me, that God was with me. Paul had not been in Judea after his conversion to Christ, except for the few weeks that he was with the apostles in Jerusalem before departing for Tarsus. He did not return to Jerusalem for a long time afterwards. And therefore, the Christians of Judea would not have known him personally. From Galatians chapter 2, verse 1, Then after 14 years, I had again gone up to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. And I had gone up after a revelation, and laid upon them the good message which I proclaim among the nations, but privately to those of repute, lest in any way I strive or have strived in vain. Now Paul was sent to Jerusalem with Barnabas, as it is recorded in Acts chapter 11, verses 29 and 30. And they are recorded as having returned from Jerusalem to Antioch in Acts 12:25. But there is no record of anything they may have done during this trip to Jerusalem except that they delivered relief unto the brethren which dwelt in Judea. As the King James Version has it in Acts 11.29. During this time, the slaying of James the, sons of Zeb the son of Zebedee 
and the arrest of Peter are recorded, as well as the death of Herod Agrippa I. However, it is unclear as to whether Paul and Barnabas are actually with the apostles at any of these events, and they may have been concurrent to the time that the two men were yet in Antioch or still in their travels. Due to the persecution, it is possible that they did not even see the apostles themselves at this time. Therefore, I would rather interpret Paul's words here in Galatians to be referring to the events of Acts chapter 15, when indeed Paul went to Jerusalem Jerusalem specifically to lay upon them the good message which I proclaim among the nations. That's the reason why he went. Paul's words here do not necessarily preclude a trip to Jerusalem in the interim, such as that recorded in Acts chapters 11 and 12. Galatians 2, 3. Yet not even Titus, who with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised by those privily introduced false brethren, such who infiltrate to spy out our freedom, which we have in Christ Yahshua, in order that they may enslave us to whom not even for a minute did we yield in subjection at which the truth of the good message would persevere for the sake of you. Of course, he's referring to not yielding in the circumcision of Titus, being a Greek. We have seen in Acts 15.5 that among the number of the Christians in Jerusalem were men who had been persuaded by the sect of the Pharisees. Here in In Galatians, Paul infers that those men were Edomite interlopers attempting to infiltrate and corrupt the fledgling Christian creed. Titus was not circumcised and could not be persuaded to be circumcised. He was vindicated when the side of Paul and Barnabas prevailed over the Judaizers in the decision of the apostles recorded in Acts chapter 15. However, we shall see that Paul himself, at the opening of Acts chapter 16, personally circumcised Timothy, and ostensibly because his mother was a Judean, and he did so explicitly on account of the Judeans. Therefore, perhaps even Paul, it seems, at this relatively early time, did not yet realize that Judean Christians, as well as those of the nations, should put away the works of the Mosaic law. Paul, circumcising Timothy, was basically going along with things that James expressed later in Acts chapter 21. He may not have yet realized that Judeans should stop in the rituals. The book of Acts is a book of transition. It took 30 years for the apostles to fully realize the implications of the work of Christ in their view of the law and the prophets. And James never came full circle James never realized that Judeans should also put away the rituals. 
Basically, Yahweh God forced the Ebionites to put away the rituals. When the temple in Jerusalem were destroyed, and the Judeans scattered over the subsequent history of the first and second centuries. And I'm sure eventually they all had to make a choice whether to side with the Christians of the Greco-Roman world or with the Edomites, whereby their descendants would become mongrelized Jews. We'll talk about the Ebionites more in Acts chapter 21. From Galatians chapter 2, verse 6. Now from those reputed to be something, whatsoever they were, then makes not one difference to me. Yahweh does not receive a man's stature. Therefore to me those of repute are conferred nothing. But on the contrary, having seen that I have that I have been entrusted with the good message of the uncircumcised, just as Peter of the circumcised, he who has been operating within Peter for a message of the circumcised, has also operated with me, within me for the nations, and knowing the favor being given to me. James and Cephas, or Peter, and John, those reputed to be pillars had given right hands of fellowship to me and to Barnabas, that we are for the nations and they for the circumcised. Only that we should remember the poor, the same thing which I had then been anxious to do. That's the same thing he did, in other words, in Acts 11 and 12, where it's recorded that he and Barnabas brought relief to the poor of Judea, to the apostles in Judea who were being persecuted by the Edomites, and I'm certain, probably couldn't work, right? Couldn't earn a, a, a living for themselves. Although Paul and Barnabas split, Paul still continued to recognize the legitimacy of Barnabas's ministry. The reference to those reputed to be pillars, of course, is to Peter and James. The reference to John may be to John Mark, not to the Apostle John, since the Apostle John, the son of Zebedee, is not mentioned again in Acts after Acts chapter 8. Finally, from Galatians chapter 2, from verse 11. But when Cephas had come to Antioch, I had confronted him personally because he was condemning himself. For before some who were to come from Jacob or from James, he had eaten in common with the nations. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, being in fear of those of the circumcised. And also the rest of the Judeans had acted with him, and even Barnabas had been led away by them in hypocrisy. This demonstrates the degree of influence which James had and the degree of zeal he had for the law. He was surrounded by people who had zeal for the law and insisted that Judean Christians keep the law. 
Peter communed with those of the household of Cornelius, Acts chapters 10 and 11. And later, in Peter's discourse defending Paul in Acts chapter 15 in Jerusalem, Peter expressed Christian unity between Judean Christians and those of the nations, where in verse 11 he said, but through the favor of Prince Joshua, we trust to be saved in the manner as they also. Evidently, Peter later reverted to the Mosaic law that commanded those of the circumcision to eschew the uncircumcised, to keep themselves separate from the uncircumcised. This event, which Paul describes here in Galatians, this confrontation he had with Peter and the other apostles, is not recorded in the book of Acts. There is no mention in the book of Acts that Peter was ever in Antioch. Peter is not mentioned again in the book of Acts after chapter 15, where he is recorded as having spoken in Paul's favor. He's not mentioned again. After Acts chapter 15, where Paul departs Antioch, Paul is not mentioned as having visited there again. And every other reference to Antioch in Scripture is a reference to Pisidian Antioch in the book of Acts. Every mention of Antioch following Acts chapter 15 is a reference to Pisidian Antioch in Anatolia, not Antioch here in Syria. Seemingly, the only opportunity where these things may have occurred is where Paul and Barnabas returned to Antioch after the decision by the apostles in Acts chapter 15, and that Peter may have visited the assembly there at that time. Yet, if that is the case, then Barnabas' hypocrisy, mentioned here in Galatians 2.13, was not enough to cause Paul to split with him, but his insistence on taking Mark along on their next journey was enough to cause Paul to split with him, and therefore the split was made before the journey began. In any event, Luke admits having cir- Paul's having circumcised Timothy in the opening of Acts chapter 16, where Paul himself apparently accedes to the decision of at least some of the apostles, namely James, to keep Judean Christians under the Mosaic law, as we have examined in the words of James in Acts chapter 21, where Paul again accedes to his wishes. This circumcising Timothy in verse 16 would rule out the possibility that this confrontation with, with Peter happened while Paul and Barnabas were still together in Antioch. It rules out the possibility that the confrontation, the, the confrontation with Peter happened before Paul circumcised Timothy. Because how could Paul have that, con- that, that confrontation and then circumcise Timothy? It's not possible. So Paul must have visited Antioch at some later time. And it's not recorded in Scripture. But it had to be before Paul wrote the Galatians. It's not recorded in Acts. Or anywhere else, except in Galatians chapter 2. Concerning 
the adherence to the law for Judean Christians, insisted upon by James and the elders who were with him. It seems that while Paul does not like the direction that James had taken, even though he accedes to his elders and undergoes the purification ritual in the temple in Acts chapter 21, he nevertheless expresses the freedom that he dislikes that. He asserts the freedom to express that he dislikes that to the Galatians and other assemblies which received his letters, and to the Hebrews themselves in his epistle to them. And therefore, in his epistles, which were all written much later, Paul judges his elders to be in error. By the time of the writing of his epistle to the Galatians, Paul clearly considered Judean Christians who insisted upon keeping the Mosaic law to be hypocrites. And he addresses those errors and explains all of his positions in, from a scriptural standpoint in his epistle to the Hebrews. Paul's epistle to the Hebrews is really a response to James's position that Judean Christians should keep the law of Moses and the circumcision and the other rituals. Paul's epistle to the Hebrews is basically a refutation of Ebionite Christianity. And we'll see more of that in Acts chapter 21. This has been Acts chapter 15. Thank you for listening and praise Yahweh. Good night. I will be here tomorrow night. Pragmatic Genesis, understanding two seed line. Praise Yahweh.